day I see my dream. Snap to Cohen. Pressure off the edge. Drops up in the pocket. Fires down the middle. Allen's at the three. Grabs it into the end zone. Touchdown Raiders. Snap on first and goal. Pitch to Jacobs. Racing left. Breaks a tackle. Leans the ball forward. Touchdown Raiders. Josh Jacobs wouldn't beat him. Nine again. This is the area of field where Hunter Renfro usually shines. They're going to double cover him. The slot to the right. Instead, it's a handoff into the belly of Jacobs. Bounces off the defender. At the two and in the end zone. Touchdown Raiders. Jacobs does it again. First and ten on the Texans 15. Delayed hand up to Jacobs. Huge hole up the middle 10. Cuts right side five. Touchdown Jacobs. The hat trick in the end zone. His third rushing touchdown of the day. Over the middle. Intercepted Harmon at the 30. 40. Racing far side 50. 30. Harmon at the 20. We on? All right. Me, Tyler, and Jared. <laughs> I, was, I was getting caught up in that opening. A lot of touchdowns the new there opening, that I didn't yeah. see and you didn't see. A lot of, so, lot of touchdowns. I haven't gotten to... I haven't gotten to, to do one after a win. And so I instead of no, I went with yes. So to explain what's about to happen, aside from just saying it's going to be a mess, um, Ed was flying back from Notre Dame. I was at the When We Were Young Music Festival yesterday, which means we're about to talk about the Raiders winning their second game of the season while Ed and I have not watched it, which means we're relying on Jared, which is going to be great. This is going to be awesome. Possibly. It's going to be awesome. Jared took notes. <laughs> he has an actual <laughs> f- physical paper, like I did, actual I did quarter by brought it in. I did quarter by quarter. Is that nice. hold on? I have an important question. You texted us yesterday about having an actual notebook. Do you have an actual notebook, or are these just loose pieces of paper? No, I had a notebook, okay. and then right. I. the The worst part was halfway through the first quarter, my pen ran out, and that was that was a challenge. Because <laughs> you randomly finding like four pieces of small paper would around your house would is, yeah, is actually would how I envisioned really, you doing especially this. Especially if like there were parts crossed out, because I was like, well. It's mostly open. I can still write on it. Second pen around the house. Oh yeah, no. Uh, thankfully, I found uh, one of one of my friends ran for city commissioner, and he like his advertisement was pens. <laughs> he did not win, so I got all the leftover pens. All right, I've got a question. When's the last time either of you bought a pen? I'm able to college from my job with the newspaper get some pens if I need them. Right, so you don't, but you don't buy them. No, never. I can't remember the last time I bought a pen. I also can't remember the last time I didn't have a pen in my house ready to use. Right. Where do right. pens come from? <laughs> and you don't know print. where you bought them. I've got a drawer that's. Ju- I got like forty pens. I can I got use at any given moment. I got a you cup. have a cup of pens. Yeah, yeah, just full of pens, but they all have some logo on them. But I can't remember the last time I purchased one. <laughs> the greatest thing we have is just pens appear all the time, ready to go. The first bite. Jared, how the hell did the Raiders beat the Texans? All right. Was so, that the first bite? <laughs> yes, that's my first what bite. What they did was, and this is my theory, they pulled a Rocky two. Now, right. Ed would get that reference. Yes. Tyler, I I'm still a... do not have an answer to my question. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so basically, they went out, the Raiders went out for the whole first half and threw these little, like, underneath routes, and it wasn't very effective, and Josh Jacobs had, like, 30-something yards, 35 yards, 
He kept getting stopped at the line of scrimmage. And so you end the half at like 10-10. And then suddenly in the second half, they go, you know, this Josh Jacobs guy, he was pretty good last week. What if we just hand him the ball over and over and over again? And suddenly he has 108 yards and three touchdowns. And even then, it wasn't actually as like bad of a beating as the scoreboard indicates. But it definitely was, okay, we're going to have Derek Carr beat him in the first half. 10-10. Yep, this feels like a Derek Carr-Davis Mills game. <laughs> and then in the second half, they went, what if we just have Josh beat him? And it went, oh, okay, Josh Jacobs is really freaking good. So we were robbed of Derek Carr and Davis Mills shootout? Um, Davis Mills, in my opinion, and this might be me just having a predilection or like not loving the way Derek Carr plays, I think Davis Mills outplayed Derek Carr, despite the fact that he threw a 76-yard pick six. To Deron Harmon? Yeah, to Deron Harmon. They were already down two scores, right? Right, but he also rushed the throw, and he basically threw it to a guy with when Deron Harmon was running at the ball when he threw it. So it was almost a comeback route to Deron Harmon. But for the most part, yes, the... The, it it almost seemed like they went back to the locker room and went, we should be kicking the crap out of this team. And even then, it was a close game with like 13 minutes left. It was 20 to 24. And like the Raiders were up by four and the Texans had the ball. And then suddenly it was, okay, J- Josh, Josh, you got this? Oh, okay, yeah, Josh got this. I uh, I saw Josh Jacobs as the first Raiders running back since Napoleon Kaufman to have three straight 100-yard mm-hmm. games. Um, didn't see this, but I'm guessing he was just as good as he has been in the previous games, given that he went for 143 yards right. on 20 carries. And these weren't, these weren't easy runs. It okay. wasn't him running out of bounds. It was him basically getting the ball and taking three guys seven yards okay. over and over again. How how did he how did he have 143 yards on seven on 20 carries? That's 7.2 yards a carry, but his longest run was 15. Yeah, you're telling me every run was between like seven and 15 yards. Yeah, and he also (laughs) I'm also telling you that in the first half he got stopped at the line or lost yards multiple times. How did this guy have so many? Normally, when you go for like 140. It's because you have like a 60-yard touchdown run in there. He had 100. His longest was 15 on the day, and he went for 140? I'm telling you, That's the Rocky the Rocky 2 metaphor are, works because they were like, Derek Carr, you're going to beat him. I think his first three completions were to Devontae Adams on these underneath things, hoping that he would just like streak down the field after catching the ball. That now, never happened. Then suddenly in the second half, they go, all right, go lefty. Well, exactly, and I was going to say Rocky too. he switched to Southpaw. Yeah, that's to Southpaw. so, okay, to explain the metaphor to Tyler, Rocky is a left-handed fighter. He's a Southpaw fighter, but in Rocky two, they make him fight right-handed the entire fight until suddenly, at the near the end, they go, switch, and he starts going left-handed, and the guy has no idea how to defend Why would they make him fight him. right-handed? Because it's a, you defend differently right Right now, the other left. thing I saw yesterday, which will be very interesting. Now, maybe you came up with Rocky II this way, or maybe it's just a coincidence. You know who lit the flame? No. Carl Weathers. 
<laughs> who played Apollo Creed. Apollo Creed. I don't know. The guy who lost. Into. You don't know this? The guy who beat Rocky in Rocky 1 and then lost Rocky yeah. in Rocky 2. Spoilers. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. And Jared, with not knowing this, still came up with the Rocky 2 analogy. <laughs> so why did he fight with his wrong hand? Because it gave him, it basically, Messed they had already Apollo. fought, they had already fought once and he fought naturally. And then they made him fight this way in order to mess with him. And then at the end, they go, okay, go back switch to your back. Na- switch back. And then you've been fighting this guy this one way this entire fight. You go, oh, crap. That sounds a lot like, hey, um, Jordan Alvarez, you're left-handed. But go bat right-handed so they throw you a few well, different pitches. Only if Jordan had gone like 0 for 20 and then they said, okay, we got to figure something out here. Still so he lost stupid. the first. Like, he fight. lost the first fight. Well, they needed they needed a script for the second fight, so they you know they had to write something in there that was different than the first fight. Hey, you lost the first fight, so do something you've never done before yes, with your and weak it worked. hand. It worked. It's Hollywood because it, it's a movie. It's Hollywood. Sounds stupid. This okay, but anyway, any, oh, well then you should have uh, seen Rocky Eight. <laughs> you know you should have. Se- yeah, you should have seen the one where they the end fight is in the middle of a street. <laughs> Where else would you want to have boxing happen? That sounds great. So, based on the limited information I have, uh, yes, the Raiders did pull a Rocky, too. Because Josh Jacobs is their left hand, and Derek Carr is their right hand. It it was almost comical how ineffective the Raiders' offense was. At one point, passing through the room while I'm making my notes, my dad went, if you combined these two teams, they'd still be boring. <laughs> Turn on the Phillies game. Like, if was, you combined them, would they make the playoffs? I mean, if you had the one-two punch of Jacobs and Pierce, I mean, half my notes, half my notes are this Pierce kid. This, <laughs> what the hell is a Collins for? What the hell is a Nico, Nico Collins? Collins? Yeah, you got to throw it to Nico Collins. So he was really good till he got hurt. Did so are they going to keep doing this like we talked last week to where they're just going to rely on him and, and think they can win, continue to win games this way, although the schedule softens a little. But we said last week, like, could they continue to do this and expect to win games? So that's the interesting part because New Orleans, Jacksonville, Indy, the next three, I'll have to look and see exactly where their run defense is ranked, but I don't think any one of those three have a highly ranked run defense. I don't think any one of those three have good grades by pro football focus on their run defense. So there's a chance the next three they can do this, that you're getting, you know, 25 carries out of Josh Jacobs. Somehow he doesn't run for more than 15 yards and still has 150. Like there's a chance. Now the next two, you're going on the road to new Orleans and to Jacksonville and Neither one of those teams is bad enough that you're just going to walk in there right, and, and win, win easily. Right. So you're probably going to need a handful of plays from Derek Carr. Like you can't just say, hey, we're giving Jacobs 25 carries and we're going to win. You're going to need a handful of plays from Derek Carr, which is certainly possible. But sure. The, the, the part that's okay. If let's say hypothetically they do win their next three, right? And they get, they'd be five and four at that point, right? Then you play Denver, Seattle, Chargers, Rams, New England, Pittsburgh, San Francisco, Kansas City to finish the year. You're probably not winning very many games just because you're giving Josh Jacobs the ball in that second half of the season because you actually are going to play some good defenses, some good run defenses down the stretch. So maybe the running game carries them to three more wins or two out of the next three, something like that. But to end this, like at some point, if they're going to make this massive comeback from one and four and make the playoffs... Derek Carr is going to have to be the reason they win a game or two. At some point along the line, Carr is going to have to have a monster game when they can't run the ball. When Jacobs has, you know, 18 carries for 47 yards. yards. 
and so, Carr's going to have to win it. Something that I actually like wrote down was, do they let Derek Carr throw downfield? Because until the Mac Hollins touchdown, he had not thrown the ball over 20 yards. And the reason he threw it to Mac Hollins is that the it was double high safety. One of the safeties for Houston just got freaking lost. Like he he just ran to the right. No one's in that general area. Realizes that there's a guy streaking behind him and runs back. If you if you zoomed in to just uh, Mac Hollins catching the touchdown, it looks like he's double covered. Yeah. No, it's literally that the other guy who's like kind of in front of him just got there at the last minute because he had ran. Like somebody setting their Madden controller down and him just sort of like listing slowly to the left. Uh, Chandler Jones got a sack. Chandler Jones is back. This was his coming out party. <laughs> back. He he got a tackle on a running back, and then at the end of the second uh, at the end of the second quarter, when there was twenty something seconds left, and they were like, "Davis Mills, you got to lead us down the field. You got to get us. Uh, you got to get us do. in the field goal range." Him and Clee Farrell. Combined oh, for a lovely man. sack, a ah. gentleman's agreement. Oh, look at that! They had to team up to get it together. Wait I, a minute, does that mean Max Crosby was off the field in a two-minute drill, or do they have Furl Jones? No, they, and yeah, I Crosby think they, they had okay. them all, and they didn't have uh, Cleveland Furl go out to try to hit Travis Kelsey in the face <laughs> or Nico Collins, whoever it would have been. No, Nico Texas. Collins was hurt. Like, almost immediately. Like, Nico Collins had, like, two great catches, that so much so that I wrote down, what the hell is a Nico Collins? And then immediately, yeah, he's done. Uh, There were a lot of Houston players that I was like, oh, he's really good. Oh, he's hurt. Can you explain this? Derek Carr once got sacked by mascots. How did we not know about this? Like, he played in a little mascot game? He played in the mascot game as a kid. And And he got tackled? And fumbled. Oh, my God. Wait, is he in one of the, like... Did There's a video of him getting... They, I'm assuming they played it on the broadcast? Yes. All right. I recorded. I'm watching it after the show today, so I I can't wait. The, I might fast forward until I just wait, find this. Wait, this is when he was little? Yeah, you've seen those videos, right? Where, like, they'll have, like, yes. a team of mascots play, like, seven-year-olds or something. And the mascots always just punish the little kids. Okay, it happened at 2.06 oh, yesterday. I literally wrote down 206 car fumbled against mascots <laughs> in the second quarter. So 206 in the, uh no, well not 2 minutes and 6 seconds left in the second quarter, but 206 that would have been more helpful. I should have right. wrote down wrote the actual down, yeah, down I wrote the down the time, time. Wrote the actual time. <laughs> There's so, a reason you guys don't normally let so me do game, this. The game That's started probably at one. near yeah, it's probably near the end of the first half. So an hour and 6 minutes into the recording, yeah. I will. Yeah. You'll you see that. Wait for that. All right. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're in some UNLV football. But first, before we go to break, I did want to give a shout out uh, and condolences to the family of Jim Bola. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jim Bola, former UNLV women's basketball coach. He's actually the first person I did a radio show with here in Las Vegas. We were over on Kadon. We started a show at 5 a.m. in the morning was the first show that we did. Um, so Love Jim. Jim was yes. phenomenal. One of the nicest people I've yes. ever met. One of the greatest people I've done radio with. Yes. Um, love Jim Bola. He passed away last week and just wanted to yeah, give condolences peace, to his family. So Jim Bola, uh, appreciate everything you did. Here comes the punt from Nichols and the pet, the kick is blocked. The kick is blocked right there. And Notre Dame will take over as Isaiah Foskey came flying in to block Marshall Nichols punt. Huge break for Notre Dame. 
Last Rebel punt was blocked, leading directly to a Notre Dame touchdown. Line of scrimmage, the Rebel 29. Standing at his 15 is Nichols. And this kick is blocked also. Notre Dame blocks back-to-back -back punts, and they cover the ball at the 14-yard line. Wow. It's the Press Box with Graney and Bischoff on ESPN Las Vegas. UNLV lost to Notre Dame 44-21 on Saturday. Ed Graney was there. Well, how, by the way, before the game, how was Notre Dame? Did you actually see uh, any of it? No, I had been there uh, two or three times before and okay. saw the campus. This time we parked uh, far away, walked through all the uh, tailgates, and went right into the stadium. Okay. All right. So that was... How was the little city that you stayed in? Goshen, Indiana was uh, interesting. Uh, uh, it was very... It's always uh, good when that's the first yeah, word. Very interesting. Um, tried an Applebee's, and it's supposed to close, close at midnight. Tried, uh, but at 9 o'clock, tried to open the doors, and they were locked, and the nice lady came and said, our computers are completely down. We have no food idea what food we're ordering. We have to shut down. So that was not good. But Buffalo Wild Wings was open across the street, so headed over there. Uh, for a little watching of the baseball game and uh, wow, having yeah, Applebee's uh, closed Shut down. down. Computers weren't working, and then I will say um, yesterday. Shout out, shout out uh, to uh, Southwest Pilots. They earned their money. We were bumping all the way home with that wind and coming into Vegas. Ah, yeah, it was fun. It was all over the area. You were, were you weren't uh, UNLV football and stuck on the tarmac for hours. No, we got off on time. Um, you left. You left the next day. We left the next day, right but after. they were uh, apparently Danny was in here and they were delayed a long time because of the winds in Vegas, so they wouldn't let them take off. So, yeah, that's a uh, that's not good. You lose forty four to twenty one, then you get to the airport and they say sit here for two or three hours. All right, let me ask you a question: Do you believe coaching? Cost UNLV against Notre Dame. The game, no. They weren't going to win that game. I don't think they were going to win that game with Doug Brumfield. Notre Dame was just kind of bigger and faster and better. Let me ask you this. If Brumfield's in that game, is he the best quarterback on the field? Yes. I think so, too. Yeah. Notre Dame's quarterback, uh, yeah. Pine, was not very good. <laughs> Pine. The only thing he could do was throw to the tight end because UNLV well, decided. That, guy's, that guy you know, might be a top five pick. <laughs> UNLV decided we are not going to cover him. <laughs> that guy. Might be close He's to him. He's a top five pick. Um, Notre Dame's quarterback was not good at all. So I don't believe coaching cost UNLV that game simply because I don't think UNLV is going to win that game. But I do think coaching prevented UNLV from having its best shot at winning. I think coaching made it harder for UNLV to win that game. And there's really, it comes down to two things. Number one, Marcus Arroyo went into that game planning to play two quarterbacks. Mm -hmm. We've seen him do this before last year, and it did not work. He's gone into games planning to play two quarterbacks. And every single time he does, the offense is horrible. They don't do anything right. They're bad. He did that again. Cameron Friel started the game. Harrison Bailey came off the bench in what appeared to be a predetermined series as to when Harrison Bailey was going to come into the game. These are your quarterback stats. Cameron Friel, 8 of 15 for 80 yards, and Harrison Bailey, 9 of 18 for 73 yards. Do you think there's any logical reason to switching quarterbacks the way he did? I mean, he obviously, like you said, he obviously scripted it. I think Bailey came in the second series of each half, but then they started to, they scored with Bailey, so he just stayed with them. Um, no, I don't, I don't understand it really other than Brumfield's not playing We're but we're going to give them both a chance and see what happens, but it doesn't work. Um, look, here's the deal. They're not good enough without Brumfield. So no. it doesn't really matter who's playing. If, if he's not playing, they're just not good enough at quarterback to win games. 
Um, with the bye, I think they're hoping he's back for San Diego State, and then we'll see what happens the last four games. But no matter what he does a quarterback, they're just not good enough without Brumfield. The other main area to me was the distribution of touches for the running backs. Courtney Reese had three touches in the first half. He had a 74-yard run that set up their first touchdown. Then he had a six-yard or negative six-yard run and a 13-yard run. So what that meant was Courtney Reese had 81 yards in the first half against Notre Dame. UNLV only had 135 yards in the first half. Courtney Reese had 60% of their yards, and he had it on three touches. They ran 29 offensive plays in the first half, and Courtney Reese only had three touches. He had another big run in that game. He ended up with 142 rushing yards. Mm -hmm. He had 11 carries in that game. UNLV ran 61 plays, and the only guy who picked up big yardage got 11 of... That means 50 times they did not give the ball to the only guy that made a play. That, to me, when we talk about sort of predetermined quarterback series, that felt like a, hey, we have a predetermined type of plays or set of plays we want to run, and we're not deviating from that. Even if Courtney Reese is being effective, even if the only reason the only reason they scored their first two touchdowns was Courtney Reese had a big, big runs. Right. He had the 74-yard and then another big one that got them into the red zone. And that felt very much like a, hey, this is predetermined what we want to do. And even though Courtney Reese is the only reason we're moving the ball, we're not going to do it. The the most baffling one to me, Courtney Reese rips off the 74-yard run. They score two plays later, right, for their first touchdown of the game. The next series, Harrison Bailey comes into the game for the first time, and Marcus Arroyo has him throw the ball three straight times. They go three and out and punt. Get it blocked, by the way. They go three and out and punt. You just ripped off a 74-yard run with Courtney Reese, and now you're bringing in a quarterback that everybody has seen that's bad to ask him to throw three straight times. That's just, that's bad. Like, that's not putting your team in the best chance to win. And again, I don't think they're winning that game no matter what. I don't either. Marcus Arroyo, because here's the thing, that Harrison Bailey drive, they had a chance to, to tie the game or take the lead if they'd gone for two or something. Like, they got the ball back down by one score, after that Courtney Reese big run. I think and, it was like 10-7. Yeah. Yeah, they could have taken the lead. And they decided that they were going to have Harrison Bailey throw them down the field. And they went three and out and had to punt and got it blocked. Like, that that's just bad to me. That's that's not good enough from a head coach to have a bring in a cold quarterback who everybody knows is bad and say, we're going to have you throw it three straight times when Courtney Reese just ripped off a 74-yard run. For Courtney Reese to have a 74-yard run in the first quarter and then only get two touches the rest of the first half, that's almost unexcusable. Like, that's just like, what are you doing? Like, give give that guy the ball. Like, good things happen. I mean, he had, they had, I think he had like six of their eight plays over 10 yards in that game. It's just, it's just not good enough from a coaching standpoint. All right, coming up next, Ben Goats joins the show. Kennett on the left, the car out hides to the left, McKinnon shoots, he scores! Long posted in. Nathan McKinnon, power play goal. One nothing Avalanche. We're back to the press box with Grady and Bischoff. Joining us now from the Review Journal is Ben Goats. Good morning, Ben. How are Hello, you today? Ben. I'm doing well, guys. How are you? Happy to be back in Las Vegas, ready to see some hockey. Yeah, right. Ben was. Uh, do you know where Ben went? Yeah, he went to Happy Valley. Yeah, to watch a. Well, was it a fun football game for you, Ben? 
That was a great football game, uh, Minnesota-Penn State. They stopped keeping score. Really rare <laughs> for them to do that. But they were just like, wow, both teams playing so great. Uh, let's call it even. Uh, no, outside of obviously what ended up being the result, uh, incredible atmosphere. This is their annual whiteout game. So it's 109,000 people packed into this you know, big stadium in college uh College Valley, Valley College, I can't remember now off the top of my head, but there's so many people there all wearing white. It's absolutely insane. The atmosphere is just electric. It's this complete college town that's far away from any of the other major cities, the three-hour drive from Pittsburgh. And so it was just really, really fun, really great trip, despite the fact that the football game did not turn out uh, as expected or hoped. Were people around you uh, nice as you rooted for the uh, Gophers? People were nice. We were in our own little maroon and gold pocket okay. of the whiteout way, way up in the uh, upper uh, right-hand corner of the <laughs> upper deck. I was uh, in row 90, uh, I believe, <laughs> row what 90. we were uh, in, in, once again, the upper deck. So we went, we're pretty far up there. We're about five rows from the literal top of the stadium. But if you anyone searches any pictures of the whiteout and you look in the top right corner of a lot of these photos <laughs> and see, like, oh, there's a weird dark section there. What happened there? <laughs> Uh, that is where they stuck all the lovely Minnesota people that made the drive out and then were thoroughly disappointed by about the third quarter. Can I ask why you decided to go to this away uh, Minnesota game? Yeah, so it's a friend who's a gopher season ticket holder. He's trying to go to every away Big Ten venue. He was the best man at my wedding, uh, and one of my groomsmen goes a lot with him. And so this was obviously one of the rare times that Penn State comes up. On Minnesota's football schedule and the fact that it was Penn State's homecoming game and their whiteout and everything made it, uh, you know, a game that obviously we thought would be very cool to attend. It was. So that's kind of how that ended up getting put together. Despite flying in and having to drive three hours out of the way to get there. Yeah, you know, it's a little bit of an inconvenient way (laughs) to do it, but once in a lifetime uh, experience. So I would say for sure worth it. Uh, you wrote a story about uh, Phil Kessel, who is closing in on the uh, record four consecutive games played. Um, I'm curious, how how big of a deal did you think, the people you talked to uh, around Phil Kessel, how big of a deal do you do they think it is that Phil Kessel is going to break this record? A lot of people think that it's very cool that he's going to do it. I talked a lot about this with his sister, Amanda Kessel, who's a three-time Olympian. Uh, I covered her when she was a Gophers women's hockey player. Just incredible, incredible forward. Uh, and I think one thing that failed to make it in the story, but I do think is interesting to point out that it makes it unique for Phil Kessel to be the one to break this record. This is a guy, especially when he was back in Toronto, and it's ironic that he's playing the Maple Leafs tonight, uh, obviously heard a lot of criticism about he doesn't want it enough, he doesn't try hard enough, uh, he's out of shape. He doesn't know how to basically lead this team and get the best out of his incredible talents. And now the fact that this is a guy who has now played in every game for 12 full seasons in County, he hasn't missed a game and I believe nearly 4,000 days. It's pretty incredible. It's actually almost 5,000 days. It's pretty incredible. This person of all people is going to be the one to break this record. So a lot of the criticisms that have come Phil Kessel's way in his career now are going to obviously be a lot harder to mount against him when he is the one that has played through all these different ailments and bumps and bruises and gotten to the point where now he's going to break the NHL's all-time record and have no one else particularly close to breaking it behind him. So I think it's a very uh, 
interesting and probably notable deal in that respect just because it is Phil Kessel, this guy that has had, you know, all these detractors throughout his career for things like the fact that he wasn't tough enough or didn't take care of himself enough. The fact that he's going to be the one uh, to do this, I think, is notable. Does it, you know, obviously make him a significantly better player than he was today or this morning when he is one off the record? I'm not quite sure about that, but I think it does say something about him as a player uh, and as a person that I think a lot of people look past, especially early on in his career, just how committed he actually is uh, to this sport in his own unique Phil Kessel way. Uh, knowing hockey as you do, this specific record comparative to other sports, how, how impressive is it? I mean, obviously I think it's very impressive in terms of hockey as a full contact sport. You've got guys flying on metal blades trying to hit you at all turns. I think there's just a lot of people that naturally get hurt doing through that. And we saw, obviously, with the Knights last year, how easy it is to get hurt in hockey, not even just necessarily in the big ways like Mark Stone injuring his back, but I think back to a guy like Max Pacioretty who had a foot go off his skate in the second game of the season against the Los Angeles Kings, and boom, he broke it, and that's that. And so the fact that Phil Castle has avoided all these things, he's played through a lot of things, he's pushed through, I'm sure, a lot of aches and pains, I think is very impressive in this sport. I don't know how to necessarily you know, compare it to uh, football or basketball or baseball, but the fact that this is obviously a contact sport, the violence is one of the things that makes this game appealing, and the fact that Phil Castle has managed to push through all that to stay healthy, to stay on the ice, to keep contributing to his team, I think is really impressive. I know the Knights tweeted out this stat last night. Uh, Phil Castle is closing in on his 989th consecutive game played well. I believe no one else on the night has played more than about 60 consecutive games played. I mean, it's just very hard to do what he is doing. There's no other active player with a streak that's longer than 500 games. Uh, it's pretty unique. So let me add to the list of detractors here. Once he breaks this record, uh, is there a chance that Phil Kessel's out of the lineup in any games? Like, is he good enough that he needs or should be in the lineup every single night? I think that's going to be a really interesting talking point once we get past here because he's still really finding his way with the Knights. He only has one assist through six games so far. I don't think his line with Eichel and Smith has always been clicking at five-on-five. Five. The chemistry between him and Eichel that seems really apparent in the preseason, I have not seen a lot of. There hasn't been a lot of those two guys finding each other, you know, especially in transition to really wreak havoc on opposing teams on the power play. He hasn't emerged as a major contributor yet. So we'll have to see. I mean, obviously, I think we're a long ways away from that topic potentially getting brought up in terms of, you know, his streak ending the same way Keith Yandels did before him, which was a healthy scratch. I don't think we're getting close to discussing that yet. But uh, certainly, you know, once we get past the record, I think a focus is going to shift a lot more to the fact that Phil Kessel, uh, as of right now, isn't really producing for this team. I mean, obviously, all the talk coming into this year was, wow, he literally didn't live up to his standards in Arizona. He really wants to get back to that. But even in Arizona last year, uh, we're talking about you know a 52-point season. It only had eight goals. That was the big glaring issue. But right now we're looking at he's well, well off that pace based on his start here. So we'll have to see whether he's able to get it clicking with Eichel and Riley Smith on that top line or whether Bruce Cassidy is going to have to shuffle things up and find a better home for Castle to get the most out of him. 
Is there anything to read into that the two losses they have are to the two best teams they've played? I certainly think it's something. Um, I think these have been big tests for the Knights, and they are still struggling to find their way through. Now, I think the Calgary game was obviously a much more disappointing loss than Colorado in terms of all the self-inflicted wounds they had and with all the penalties they took. Uh, plus, I think Calgary, despite the fact that the score was very close until late in the third quarter when the Flames finally went ahead, the Knights were clearly being outclassed in that game. The you know scoring chances at five-on-five were not close. Calgary was the better team most of the night, and they ultimately deserved to kind of come through in the end there and take the full two points out of that game. I mean, Colorado, the Knights certainly had their chances. They certainly had looks to tie the game. They had looks when the game was still in the balance. I don't think they can walk away wholly disappointed by that loss in terms of the effort they gave like they did with Calgary. But I do think they're going to rue these games just because this was the opportunity for them to really put their foot forward and say that we're back in kind of this contenders mix and not, you know, in the tier below where we're going to playoffs. At least they look like they are with the start they're on right now. We'll see if they are able to keep it up. Um, but we're not necessarily going to look to go deep in the playoffs like a Colorado obviously will, like a Calgary will with all the moves they've made this offseason. I think it's a missed opportunity for them to really cement themselves as one of the top teams in the NHL this year. And so I think because they're not obviously going to have an opportunity like playing Calgary and Colorado in quick succession for quite a while, they are going to view that as we really could have made some noise once we got through those games and getting none of the four points possible out of those two matchups, I think is ultimately going to hurt them, not in the standings-wise, not in the race for the playoffs, but just in their you know view of where they are at in terms of the tiers of the National Hockey League. Well, he is Ben Goats from the Review Journal. Ben, as always, we appreciate it. Thanks, Ben. No problem. Thanks, guys. So, Ben Goats on the Golden Knights and a trip to Pennsylvania yeah, to watch Minnesota lose to Penn State. Um, I did want to give one update. Our uh, Friday football frenzy from Dollar Loan Center. Uh, Steven did not win. Um, Where are we, 800? We'll we'll be giving away, trying to give away $800 this week. Um, He had the Raiders. He had the Jets. He had the Jags. Oh, my God. Who got tackled on, what, the two-yard line? line. Yeah. So Steven came up a couple yards short of taking home 700 bucks, which means somebody... Is going to get a shot at $800 this weekend. Um, so, yeah, 800 bucks, Dollar Loan Center, Friday Football Frenzy. All right, coming up next, we'll jump into some NBA. Back to throw, pick it, getting some pressure, gets it off downfield, and it's intercepted by Justin, Justin Bethel. Takes it back to the Dolphin 47-yard line. Bethel with his first interception, the first interception the Dolphins have had since the opening drive of this season. Pick it out of the shotgun. Back to fire, intercepted. and it's intercepted. The Dolphins get it. Uh, Holland with the interception, and that'll all but do it. The Dolphins just going to have to hang on to the football. Pickett out of the shotgun, back to throw, looking, looking, rolling, looking left, throws it downfield. It's intercepted by Igbenogany. One. He got him down. You're sitting in the press box with Graney and Bischoff on ESPN Las Vegas. Follow them on Twitter at Ed Graney and Bischoff underscore Tyler. So I guess Kenny Pickett didn't play very well yesterday. Well, <laughs> all I was going to say is if you want your kid to be a quarterback, maybe don't have the last name Pickett. Yeah, be helpful. <laughs> uh, 
First off, I saw a stat that the Lakers were up 98-90 in like the final five minutes of a game against the Blazers. And then Russell Westbrook checked back in and the Blazers went on a 16-6 run to win the game. <laughs> the night he was 0 for 11, they asked him how he played. He said, well. He said he played well. He's 0 for 11 against Clippers. What a disaster. Um, one other fun scoreline, the 76ers lost to the Spurs. Who don't are, even want to win. Right. And so the Sixers started the year with games against the Celtics and Bucks. All right. And they lost both. Right. Those are, you know, the th- should teams. be the three top teams yeah. in the East this year. But then they played the Spurs, and they lost to the Spurs to fall to 0-3. And I love when a tanking team beats a contending team because... Yeah. It's the it's the wrong result for both teams. Yes. Neither I mean, yes, the players are happy, but neither like actual franchise did themselves any favors in that game. With Pops was more running. surly than usual after yeah. winning. Because the Spurs ha- they have a legitimate chance to get the worst record, win the lottery, and draft Victor Webanyama. Right. And is it gonna come down to one game? Probably not, but like beating the Sixers is a game where you're like, wait a minute, we shouldn't be doing this. And the Spurs already have two wins on the season. They got two more wins than the Sixers do. <laughs> Sixers are going to be in the lottery for Well, Utah's 3-0. and Yeah, what are they doing? So I very much enjoy that. Now, one thing I wanted to talk about was Adam Silver. He apparently talked to Suns employees over the weekend. Uh, Robert Sarver is selling that franchise there. The NBA had a uh, year, uh, long investigation into what Robert Sarver had done kind of sort of forced him out. They didn't actually punish him to force him out, but there was a lot of pressure from yeah. people within the NBA. Within the, and within the Phoenix organization. Right. That the, he kind of sort of got forced out by the NBA's investigation. Um, but regardless of what he talked about with the Suns and their, their owner or soon-to-be-past owner, he talked about tanking, wanting to stop it, and that the NBA considered... Promotion and relegation with the G League. Oh, I love this idea. Teams? And, and yeah, went as far as to talk about like, yeah, we'd send the two worst NBA teams down to the G League and we'd bring the two best G League teams up. We're going to have an NBA team. To the NBA. <laughs> yes, the Ignite. Um, but he said they would not do it. His quote was, it would so disrupt our business model. And even if you took two teams up from the G League, they wouldn't be equipped to compete no. in the NBA. No. Um, he did say we put teams on notice. We're going to be paying particular attention to the tanking issue this year. But what does that really mean? So what are you going to do to him? Here's, here's my theory on Adam Silver bringing up promotion and relegation. Fans don't like tanking. Because nobody's showing up to watch the Spurs or no, they don't want to the pay Pacers the money or whatever because the teams are bad and nobody yeah, they got to pay money right. to watch it. Nobody's showing up to watch those teams. Fans don't like tanking, and for the most part, I think I'm probably an outlier because I love tanking. For the most part, fans don't want there to be tanking. They would prefer, hey, every single team, all 30 teams, are trying their hardest to win as many games as possible. Right. And so I think when Adam Silver says, oh, we talked about promotion and relegation, oh, we put the teams on notice. I think that's Adam Silver just trying to put on a public face of we really care about tanking. We've got to stop it, but not actually being interested in stopping it. Because here's the thing. Exactly. Promotion and relegation 
there's zero chance it happens in the NBA. Yeah. And there's been zero chance forever that it happens right. in the NBA. When Adam Silver says, oh, we talked about it. We considered promotion and relegation. Two teams down, two G League teams up. I don't believe they had a genuine conversation about that because here's here's the ultimate here's here's the ultimate like end game of this tanking. Adam Silver works for the owners. The owners are the ones that okay their franchises to tank, right? If the owners didn't right. like tanking, then it wouldn't happen. Exactly. Yeah, they wouldn't let their general right. managers tank. Yeah, so exactly. Any idea that oh we got to punish teams for tanking? Who's Adam Silver going to punish? The people that are his bosses? The owners, no, they're fine with it because they're the ones doing it. And he said nothing about what the punishment would be. We're going right. to watch you closely. Okay, what does that really mean? We put you on notice. <laughs> we put, we're putting you on notice, San Antonio. <laughs> Quit winning in Philadelphia. That's right. I, hey, I mean, Sixers, stop tanking again. Come on. I also think it's funny that this is literally the same owners that are like, but we make so so we're going to lose, but we make the same amount of money. Yeah. Oh, uh, and then we may win a championship later. I don't. I'm not seeing the downside yeah. here. Because just like all of our sports, as we've seen, TV money makes TV makes them so much money. Their media rights deals make them so much money that they don't have to have fans in the building to make money. And our professional no. sports teams don't have to have fans in the building. We've talked to make about money. some of the baseball right. uh, TV markets, like LA and New York, to where they could have the Dodgers could have an empty stadium and make a ton of money. Yeah, the, absolutely. The, the Marlins, Marlins do. The Marlins make more yeah, the money Marlins on their do. TV deal than yeah. their payroll. Exactly. So I don't believe there's ever going to be any crackdown on tanking simply because it would have to be well, the owners. it's not going to be promotion really. It'd have to be That's the owners punishing themselves. Yeah. I don't think that happens. And here's the thing. I'm all on board tanking because if you're the Spurs or the Pacers or the Jazz or whatever, you're not anywhere close to the playoffs this year. Go get Victor Webb and Yama if you can. Maybe Philly too. <laughs>